Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 109 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Let me ask you a question. When you're making a cocktail at home or enjoying one at your favorite bar, do you ever wonder if the money you're spending on that drink ever goes toward a good cause? Is it possible to make the world a better place with every sip you take? I'll be honest, the idea of charitable drinking was a completely foreign concept to me until I was introduced to this episode's guest, Chase Babcock, who created St. Benevolence Rum to work hand-in-hand with his father's established network of charitable schools and medical clinics on the island nation of Haiti. As you might imagine, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to rum, cocktails, and philanthropic work, but before we dive in here, let me give you this opportunity to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Tea Punch, the national drink of Martinique, an island like Haiti known for its French-influenced rum agricoles. Now, it might sound like we're talking about tea, T-E-A here, but tea is actually spelled T-I and kind of indicates or means little in French Creole. So we're talking about a little punch. To make the tea punch cocktail, which is essentially a proto-daiquiri, you'll need two ounces of rum agricole, or clarin, which we'll dig into later this episode, one bar spoon of cane syrup, or a rich demerara syrup, and one fresh lime wedge. The tea punch is built right in a rocks glass, so add your cane syrup, squeeze that lime wedge right over top, add your rum, or clarin, and then stir or swizzle gently to blend the ingredients. It's that simple. Because ice requires a lot of infrastructure in the balmy Caribbean, this is an ice optional drink. So if you want it chilled, add a couple ice cubes, and if you're looking for a garnish, just keep things simple. Either chuck that little lime wedge right in there, or maybe, if you wanna get fancy, add a little lime wheel to the rim. We'll return to the tea punch later in the episode, but now let's turn our attention back to the deep philanthropic work of drinking. In this inspiring conversation with Chase Babcock of St. Benevolence Rum, some of the topics we explore include how Chase's childhood visits to Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, inspired him to create a rum brand that could enhance and catalyze the great charitable work his father began doing in Haiti back in the early 2000s what it takes to source and import rum that tells a story and inspires bartenders to make great cocktails. The legacy that Claren has in Haiti is essentially a family moonshining tradition, and why this open-fermented rustic agricole product is making a huge splash in the spirits industry today. What different sugarcane varietals can bring to the Claren making process? Why Chase and his dad Calvin publish their tax returns on the internet? how to order rum like Ernest Hemingway at a Parisian cafe, and much, much more. During this conversation at Tales of the Cocktail 2019, we taste through what I'll call St. Benevolence's two keystone or flagship 
products. Their five-year-aged Caribbean rum and their Clarin, which is just now hitting the market in Florida, California, and Louisiana. So if you're based in one of those states, be sure to request St. Benevolence next time you visit your favorite bar or liquor store. The last thing I'll say before we jump into the interview is that this is one of the most inspiring conversations we've ever recorded here on the podcast. Personally, I got chills a number of times listening to Chase speak with incredible honesty about the complications that come with white guys doing charity work in the Caribbean and the deep purpose that he and his father use as a guiding beacon that keeps the lights on in the schools and the fires burning in the stills. And with that, it's my pleasure to present this fascinating discussion with Chase Babcock of St. Benevolence Rome. Chase, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. So we were recording from our uh, remote studio here that couldn't possibly look more like a hotel room, but uh, we're going to do a really excellent tasting of the, the beautiful products that, that you brought. But I thought I figured before we get into the actual spirits themselves here, yeah, could you talk a little bit about your past and and i guess the island of haiti yeah totally so i mean first thanks for having me dude this is awesome the setting is great even though it looks like a hotel room um <laughs> it was I'm, intentional yeah i'm pumped to be here <laughs> so I'm going for so saint benevolence is uh is my rum brand pretty new company it's a father-son operation so dad and i are running the show together started saint benevolence about 18 months ago and bottled our first rum which we'll taste here in a second um but in terms of what got me to saint benevolence and what got me to haiti about 20 years ago, my father started a nonprofit organization in Haiti. Uh, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, for the listeners that aren't aware of Haiti's history and current state. Uh, and so my dad started a charity in Haiti with the long-term goal of uh, future leaders in Haiti, potentially even the president, one day coming from the schools that he would open. Haiti is riddled with all sorts of things that have caused them issues over the course of history, other countries taking advantage of them. But one of the things that's been most painful has been their lack of ethical leadership. So the long-term goal for his nonprofit was to influence the future leaders of the country by educating the children. So 2002, he opened an elementary school, and he has now got five schools, 1,500 students, kindergarten through 12th grade. We have wow. a trade college that uh, teaches uh skills like uh, brick laying and uh, welding, things like that. Sure. Um, each school doubles as a primary care clinic where we focus on infant mortality and maternal morbidity, which is a huge issue in Haiti. And then through some visiting surgical teams from South Florida, we do about 350 free surgeries a year and give out about three and a half million meals a year. Wow. So the real issue here in Haiti is all those things are great, um, but most of them are not sustainable. And what Haiti really needs are jobs. And so I came up with St. Benevolence as essentially an idea to create a sustainable business model that would funnel profit to the charity so that we could spend more time doing charity work and less time fundraising and would ensure a future revenue stream for the charitable efforts so that the folks benefiting from them wouldn't have to worry about them going away. So that's the vision of St. Benevolence. Wow. So it's kind of a lot, yeah. The, the, the scale of what you're describing to me, uh, obviously, there's a there's a, it's an appropriate scale right because you're saying that it's the the poorest country in the western hemisphere yeah, and so yeah. the scale of what you're doing seems appropriate to try and and, and counteract that uh, but it's got to be so cool to see those numbers from from start to finish going from one school and now five schools and and all this all this uh just i guess the numerical impact 
you probably see it qualitatively as well with, yeah. the, with the actual people yeah, who, for sure. who you work with. And, and we'll probably get into that uh, when we talk about the rum and the people who make it. But yeah, yeah. you just from from my perspective, not having even encountered any aspect of your operation mm-hmm. besides the liquid product. Yep. It's really inspiring. And it, it kind of reminds me, um, are you familiar with Jose Andres and, and his yep. work with yep. the World Kitchen? Absolutely. <laughs> get some of this rum in the mail to, to Jose. Yeah, we need to. With the we? story. Yeah. So... Tell me a little bit more about Haiti and the agricultural and then distilled product and, and maybe a little bit of, of why you chose to use rum mm. as a, a vehicle for this charity. Yeah, totally. So it's a great question. So we're going to rewind back to uh, late 90s. Yep. My dad is at a, a banquet event. He's sitting next to a Haitian gentleman, uh, Reverend Gayant Dorsonville, born and raised in a small town called San Michel de Atalay. And he's a Haitian pastor that lives in South Florida with his wife and kids, becomes buddies with my dad. They hit it off and now they're best buds. His family is uh, multi-generational sugarcane farmers. And so that first elementary school was actually opened on donated land from his family in the town of San Michel, which was prior a sugarcane plantation right. or a plot of land for them. Uh, so they donated that piece of land and we cut down the sugarcane and we built a school. So fast forward, you know, 17 years and we are, I'm racking my brain about what sustainable business I can build to kind of prop up the charity. It's kind of been the story of my childhood going to Haiti with my dad. And of course, to some extent, maybe living in the shadow a little bit of this uh, successful philanthropist businessman father and uh, thinking, how the hell am I going to make a dent in this like my dad has? So it's kind of my, my brain started spinning with some ideas. So, so rum was really just this kind of obvious choice, I think, because... As it turns out, uh, Reverend Dorsonville continues to grow sugarcane, has a still, and is making a spirit uh, that they drink all over Haiti, known as Claren. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up going to Haiti, I had always just called it moonshine. We just, just, you know, I equated it to sugarcane moonshine. But as I got older and my personal life led me into the wine world and the spirits world as an interest or a passion, I realized that the rum, the Claren that they were making, was pretty much rum agricole or some variant thereof. And so, you know, I said to my dad, I think we've got something here with what they're making. So in terms of the spirit, you know, historically, uh, Haitians, of course, through Haiti's history being a huge piece of the sugar trade. And also a French-influenced Yeah, and a former colony. French colony, absolutely. Um, had some French uh, rum-making influences. Uh, most of the stills are really kind of old cognac stills. Uh, instead of a true pot still like you might be used to seeing in the States or in other places around the Caribbean. And then, of course, just from an agricultural standpoint, Haiti used to be called the Pearl of the Antilles. It's one of the most fertile pieces of land probably on Earth. And frankly, I think Haiti's best shot at pulling themselves out of the depth of poverty that they're in is probably agriculture. Their agricultural industry has never been introduced to herbicides or pesticides, so they by default are growing things organically and are growing some really fantastic and delicious products, not just sugarcane. So there was a sugarcane um, kind of slapping you in the face because you're driving through town and there's sugarcane everywhere. The school was built on the sugarcane 20 years ago. And uh, the gentleman who my dad partners with in the charity has got a still. And so you're like, this is almost like, how do we not make Claren? Sure. Yeah. Which is a great question. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, t- how do we not make this? How do I? Avoid- oh, yeah. Wow. That's a, a really good kind of summation of like a I guess a, a solution that really fits the problem yeah right? sure which sure. is which is really nice you you sometimes see charities or causes 
especially in like the DC area where everyone's mm-hmm. got a, you know, a, a flag to wave um, yeah, that, sure. that, are, that, that seem to be a mismatch or seem mm-hmm. to be maybe something that is propped up by a lot of superstructure, you know, stuff sure. on the outside, stuff coming in from the outside that is influencing it. But, but this seems to use a word that, that you just used kind of organic. Yeah, sure. Um, which, which, which is really good because I think my touch point with Haiti, mm-hmm. I think the first time I really started thinking about it and, and learning about it even just a little bit was when the, the major earthquake happened and so many people ended up going down there. And then six months, a year after the fact, you learn that so much of that quote unquote aid was Mm -hmm. really not so helpful and was maybe more about the people trying to go down there and feel good about themselves than helpful to the the people who actually needed the help. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I, I like the the story that, that you just put forth with with your rum as a, a really nice counterpoint to that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really sensitive topic, man, and it's something that we take super seriously. Um, you know, the rum is a for profit company because the federal government really wants us to pay taxes on that sweet alcohol. They do uh, indeed. <laughs> my undergraduate degree in economics would tell me that we like to tax inelastic goods like gasoline and cigarettes and alcohol. So they're not going to give us a pass, right? But being a separate entity from the charity as St. Benevolence has allowed us to be really intentional with who we choose to work with. Now, of course, we choose to work with the nonprofit my father started, but also a couple others as well. And, you know, Haiti, the earthquake, I think, put a lot of, uh, put Haiti on a lot of folks' radar in 2010. But if you go back, you know, another eight years, there was a hurricane. If you go back another nine years, there was a hurricane. If you go back far enough, there's another earthquake. So, you know, a lot of the work that we do, I would say all of the work that we do via St. Benevolence, but really through the work my dad's done is focus on sustainability. Mm-hmm. And so we don't do a lot of disaster relief. We don't take construction crews. Um, we're passionate about teaching Haitians to do things that they can do for themselves. So we will never take a bunch of white kids to paint a school. We will pay Haitians to paint the school. The only thing that we take Americans down to Haiti to do are things that they can't offer themselves, which right now is really just surgery and some of the clinical expertise. So nice. it's really important that the work we do there is sustainable. And, and frankly, I think even to that point, we feel a little insecure about some of the work we're doing still isn't, I mean, passing out meals is not sustainable. So right. we really want to put an infrastructure in place where they're not, they don't need the handout of the meal. So sure. Yeah. And, you know, speaking about charity and about spirits and about indigenous peoples in particular, it reminds me a lot of the conversations that are occurring in the Mezcal world. Yeah. And especially because I just a day and a half ago took a seminar about Mezcal where this was a really important aspect of that discussion where we really dug into it and then mm-hmm. kind of identified some of the, the stress points of like, well, what do you do? Do you do yeah. this or yeah. do you do that? Do you hand out the meal? You know, do you give a man a fish? Do For you sure. teach a man to fish? Does the man already know how to fish? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're just trying to teach somebody who already knows yeah. and just does it differently than you do. Mm-hmm. So um, I think for me, I'd like to keep the Mezcal uh, conversation kind of in the clouds as yeah, sure. maybe something that we can reference, even, even though Claren is, is a much smaller industry for sure. I think there's things that we can maybe, maybe parallels that we can draw to the things that are happening in Mezcal as, as we talk about this. So I want to keep that in the clouds. Maybe, sure. maybe we'll return to it. But yeah. can you maybe talk about the first product yeah. here and yeah. get into some of the production methods and the way that you're sourcing this rum because obviously like St. Benevolence is a U.S. entity mm-hmm. and other people are making this stuff. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm curious to, I guess, speak with somebody who's actually importing rum because I, I don't think we've spoken with an actual importer. Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting to me. So tell us about 
this beautiful bottle right here. Yeah. So you rewind probably two and a half years. And so I, I'm pitching my dad the idea of the rum company and uh, he's in and we're in and we're excited. And so we basically have two options. I mean, one or two things to do. One is build a brand that people are drawn to and hopefully at some point will be recognizable. Uh, and then the other is actually start the actual production of rum, which to be clear, uh, my background is in public health and I work in a hospital and my dad is a retired commercial real estate developer who's dedicated his second half of his professional career to Haiti. So there's no running a still in either of our resumes. So rather than try to build a brand and also learn how to distill rum at the same time, we did what a lot of folks in the industry do, not just in the spirits world, the wine world as well, uh, which is source product from other uh, producers. So we really wanted to source an aged rum from Haiti, but there frankly isn't much. There's Barbancourt, and as you might imagine, Barbancourt would like to keep the word Barbancourt on the bottle containing Barbancourt rum. Sure. Uh, and then there are some other small producers uh, out of Port-au-Prince called Berlin, but we just didn't have a ton of luck purchasing someone else's Haitian-aged product. So what we did was we decided to source a rum from a couple different Caribbean countries to kind of still have the flavor and flair of the Caribbean, and then to blend it in a, in a manner that um, represented the type of rum that my father and I first started to enjoy together, which I think is probably what we would call maybe the whiskey lover's rum. So this is a blend of two rums. Uh, the first is a sugarcane juice base and pot distillation method from Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. So same land mass as Haiti. That was somewhat important to us to get as close as we possibly could to sure. Haiti. And then the second source product is sugarcane molasses and column distillation from Barbados. Okay. And so those have both been aged separately for five years in ex-bourbon barrels. And we've blended those two and bottled it at 84 proof. Great. So a little bit more uh, heat than you might normally see, although not a ton. Uh, we wanted it to be versatile for cocktailing and then for sipping as well. Right. We worked with probably the most reputable broker and trader of rum, uh, Ine Shear, to source the product. Really probably one of the larger go-to third parties for getting access to distillate that frankly, only otherwise ends up in a bottle with a name that you all might recognize on it. Right. So the process of working them was great. Um, I think a lot of really interesting history with their company, but they've got tons and tons of rum and can really white glove your experience for blending and purchasing and giving you options for pretty small runs of bottling. I mean, we, we bottled, I think, 4,400 bottles our first run of the five year. And really what we were doing here was this was proof of concept. This was let's build a brand, let's get the logo, let's choose a bottle shape, let's create an identity, and let's see if uh, a rum that donates its profits to charity resonates with the industry. Right. And really we knew that we needed the bartenders to get excited about the idea of pouring a rum for people where the profits didn't buy the owners a yacht, but would you know fund schools and medical procedures. And people are like, dude, obviously they'd be into that. Why, <laughs> Why did you need to prove that concept? But you know, not being lifelong industry folks was you know, made us nervous about launching a new brand. So the reception was awesome. And, and I, I, I tell folks, even when this was the only rum we did have, that the long-term goal was always to build out distilling operations in Haiti and that this was kind of our runway to do that. I think we'll probably always keep this rum or a version of this rum in the lineup because I think it what, it's what got us at the dance a little bit. And frankly, it's delicious and people really dig it. So Right. And I like the idea of a whiskey drinker's rum mm -hmm. as a product to get people into rum because... Even though rum and agave spirits are two of the fastest growing categories, mm -hmm. 
when it comes to rum, I think people still have a lot of preconceived notions about what it is and what to do with it. And sipping yeah. is is usually not in that conversation. Usually sure, it's tiki sure. and rum and cokes. Rum and cokes, yeah. Yeah. So um, why don't we taste this? Let's do it. These are like pretty much Glencairn glasses right here. Yeah, they look um, like it. Go for it. I still have the uh, okay. plastic sleeve oh, on that Okay, we'll get a little audio verite here for those of you who are into the... Uh, so ASMR, 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 oh yeah. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very niche uh, <laughs> podcast where people are super into cocktails and ASMR. Yeah, we do everything here. So shout out to all the seventeen-year-olds out there. That yeah, <laughs> whoever is into that. Okay, so cheers to um, rum in the morning. Yeah, cheers. And I'm just gonna actually sniff this instead of just taking it straight to the face. So tell me about a little bit of the flavor notes that we should be expecting from this bottle. Yeah, so I think based on the source product that I mentioned, um, that sugarcane juice is not going to quite come through completely as grassy because we've also got sugarcane molasses-based product in there. Really, I think in terms of the nose, the thyme in the bourbon barrel is probably where you're going to get most of the notes on the nose. So I think most commonly we get uh, vanilla on the nose is probably the most reaction that we get. Yep. Um, maybe some candied fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, vanilla is nice, uh, and it's kind of what you want from a bourbon barrel anyway. Right. Right. Uh, sometimes with a sugar-based distillate, uh, especially when it skews either to completely cane or completely molasses, mm -hmm. I find you tend to get things that are going in one direction or another, whether yeah. you're going in that kind of dried fruit direction mm -hmm. or you're going in that grassy direction. Mm -hmm. I th but I think this, those two are tugging. Right in an, in like a stabilizing way. I think, I think w what I'm getting from this is like a, a success of blending, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Cool. Um, Thank you, man. And it's, it's not, I'm guessing it's not an equal blend. No, it's not equal parts now. Right. Yeah. So, so for, for those of you listening at home who might be a little bit less familiar with what it means to blend a spirit, you know, we've got two different spirits here, but just because you have two different rums being sourced in this five year, and just because they were both aged for the same amount of time, doesn't really make them equivalent. So the job of the blender is to take feedback from the person, I guess, commissioning or, mm -hmm. you know, in instructing the blend or giving the vision for the end product, and then tweak the blend to, to achieve that outcome. Um, so do you know which is the more dominant of the two? Yeah, the uh, the sugarcane molasses product from Barbados is the is the predominant blend, and I think or predominant that's, rum in the blend. Yeah, yeah, it probably comes through a little more than the the sugarcane juice does. I think it does, and the thing I like about that too is that one other thing to keep in mind when we're talking about rum, and especially when we're talking about blends from different islands and different nations, is mm -hmm. that different nations have different rules. Sure, and one of the rules that I really like to cite as a a stanchion is kind of a, a north star in rum is that in Barbados, they're not allowed to add any sort of sweeteners mm -hmm. to their products. Mm -hmm. And that is just, it's for me, it's peace of mind because it, it, it allows me to focus on the product itself and what I'm actually experiencing without worrying mm -hmm. about what might have been done to it. Right. Whether for my benefit or to, mm -hmm. to mask something. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So to have the the dominance be be in that direction is is nice. And of course Barbados rums just have a great reputation. Yeah. Right. Yep. So I'm gonna taste this. Hmm. And this is 42% ABV, correct? Yep. I get 
a really nice salivary response from it. Yeah. Which when I'm drinking something like a Mount Gay Eclipse, I tend to get that astringency and that drying effect. Mm, okay. Yep. So for me, I think the the salivary response I get much more with an agricole, mm-hmm. much more with that sugarcane juice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that's a really cool combo for me. I don't think I've I've come across something that's got that Barbados trademark, but then I that salivary response and the finish for me, I get much more of those grassy notes. The yep. the bourbon barrel's still there. Mm-hmm. The bourbon barrel is very much the um I wouldn't want to say the backbone of this, but it's it's kind of like the the lion's share of the flavor profile. But as the finish goes off here, I get more of those like almost like a corn silk grassy flavor mm-hmm. where it's sweet, but it's got that that stemmy quality to it, but mm-hmm. a fresh stem. Yeah. Right. If you've ever like picked a piece of grass and like and like eaten the the I guess the 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 green part of the the, the freshest part of it it's 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 got this vaguely chlorophyllic quality mm. and when you think about sugarcane is literally grass yeah, that kind of sure. makes sense yeah 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 i think a lot of the things you're hitting on too are really what we were going for with the blending process was uh putting together a rum that um you might want a cocktail with so to speak so you know some of the things you highlighted uh by themselves in a bottle i'm super into um, but I also know that, uh, in terms of providing a really effective and accessible base for a quality cocktail program, I mean, a lot of my, a lot of my friends and now our accounts are blending multiple rums to create their, even their well cocktail base for rums. Right. So we wanted to be that in a bottle essentially with this rum. Yeah. So what kind of cocktails have people been making with this? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've been able to introduce folks to rum via this product a, a fair bit, which is really fun. And so I like to put it in things that people classically hold as whiskey-based cocktails or even just non-rum-based cocktails. So most notably, one of the, the restaurants in uh, the area that I live in, in the Bay Area, down in San Jose, the Lexington House, put it on their uh, Negroni Week menu and did a pineapple-infused Campari and a Negroni. And it's really just, um, you know, Punta Mes, our rum, and then the pineapple-infused Campari as a Negroni. So it plays really well in a Negroni. Um, we've been making Sazeracs with it this week. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I can see that. It, it's Sazerac Rye has some of the qualities. Yeah, some of the. I, I guess it's like a not fruity, but it it has a levity to it. I find. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Peychaud's was a um, a uh, I forget the I forget the word. Um, essentially, a pharmacist, but there was a there's a more <laughs> there's a more flowery sounding word for the uh, apothecary, maybe. Thank you. Yeah, it was apothecary. Uh, from Haiti, and he he uh, the gentleman himself Peychaud's, and then traveled, uh, immigrated to New Orleans, and then created Peychaud's uh, bitters. And so we try to use Peychaud's bitters in our cocktails too. Whenever we have a bar, uh, bartenders get excited about that connection too. So, yeah, for yeah, sure. It's cool. Wow, I and it's funny when you were talking about the Campari, the first thing that jumped to my mind that as a use case for this would be mm. like an old pal or a man about town, which yeah. is a riff on the Negroni format with yep. Yep. some of the more bitter herbaceous for sure. Yeah. Apparel TV. Uh, so I think that's right on with, with the use. And I love the idea of the pineapple infused Campari as well, because you're, yeah. you're kind of gesturing toward a jungle bird with that, yep. which yep. is fantastic. Yeah. It's cool. I would love this in a jungle bird, I think, because sometimes with the Jungle Bird, you're using like a heavy Jamaican style rum, like a Smith and Cross, even though it's not made in Jamaica, it's mm-hmm. made in England, but still that that funky, like really aggressive uh, flavor. And sometimes 
I just want my jungle bird to be moving the direction of a daiquiri because a jungle bird yep. is essentially a tiki daiquiri riff with Campari. It's got mm-hmm. the lime. It's got the rum. Yeah. It's got sugar in it. That's essentially mm-hmm. a daiquiri, but you were, were throwing in some bitterness and some pineapple. So yep. sometimes I'm in the mood for a lighter jungle bird, and I feel like this would be just an ideal. Yeah, for sure. Um, so sometimes when I think about trying to introduce craft spirits to the bar scene, mm-hmm. I, I, I see the price point as being sometimes an impediment. So yeah, for sure. Knowing that you're tr- you're trying to maximize the profit on this product so that you yep. can give more back to the people that you're trying to support with it. How do you approach pricing? Where does this fall, relatively yeah. speaking, in the price range? Uh, and and what I guess what does that mean for bars and for consumers who might want to purchase this bottle off the shelf? Yeah, totally. So we are really intentional to keep our price point under what most people set as a bar uh, to be in part of part of their cocktail programs. It varies market to market, but a good rule of thumb is really frontline pricing to the bar needs to be under 25 bucks a bottle for them to put it in a cocktail that doesn't push them past the 12 to 13, 14 bucks a cocktail. Right. And that would essentially be what people like me would refer to as like the wholesale price. Exactly. Yeah. So we backed into that number. We knew that uh, my father and I knew the whole time that if uh, if we were going to put together a brand uh, we needed velocity. We needed to move through product if the end goal was to really send money to charity. And so we knew that the cocktail game was was what we needed. Um, we made some intentional choices with that, which we can talk about a little bit later with the Claren. Um, but one of them is like the bottle that it's in. Um, we have several accounts that will uh, wash the bottle and scrape the label off and then use it for their syrups because it's like it's actually a German Riesling bottle. It's a wine bottle. But uh, er- ergonomically for the bartenders to reach into the well, grab the long neck, it, it's... Uh, we designed it to, for bartenders to get stoked on using it in cocktail programs. And yeah. so uh, combining the story of the charity that bartenders can tell to folks if, uh, you know, they're asking, what are you really into right now? The bartenders have a story in their back pocket and then the price point. So depending on the market, the five-year rum is going to be available for between 22 to 23 bucks uh, per bottle for a six-pack case. Uh, and that really allows us to participate in cocktail programs. Um, mm-hmm. There's not as much, there's really no hesitation to put it on a cocktail. Uh, we're probably not going to be the well-aged rum at that price point, but right. there's no hesitation to throw it on their cocktail list. Now, do you have um, off-premise or for our home listeners, like liquor store distribution for these products? We do, yeah. So um, right now we're distributing in California and Florida, although with the upcoming launch of the Clarin, we've expanded to Louisiana, of course, which is why we're here. There you go. Uh, and Congrats. Then, thank you, man. Super exciting. Uh, and then we've been flirting with distribution in Texas, New York, and Chicago. So I feel like Texas is like, it's got to be the next big market for rum because mm. it's such a whiskey culture. And yet you've got Tito's there mm-hmm. and you've got such a successful story of like the Tito's brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this being such a whiskey like friendly product, I mm-hmm. feel like Texas would be a great spot. Yeah, we're excited about the conversations we've had about Texas. Um, I think there's an opportunity to to move through a bunch of rum, which is cool. So last question before we move on to the Claren, which is a really, really exciting product category, yeah. maybe a little contentious. What would this sell for on the shelves if somebody lived in one of those states where you yeah. distributed and could uh, like, so like, an ask mm-hmm. that I would like to make to our listeners. Mm-hmm. If, if any of this sounds good to you, the tasting notes or the story. Yeah. And if you're living in Louisiana or Florida or California, 
it's very easy for you to just walk into your favorite liquor store and request that they carry this. Absolutely. Uh, so what would it go for normally on the shelves? Yeah, so it kind of varies depending on what the retail outlet wants to have their margin as, but the average price across the country is thirty four ninety nine usually. Which is really approachable considering yeah, I think so. what some rums go for. For sure, yeah. Especially the more industrial ones. Yeah, yeah. So that's lovely. That's, that's a great price point. I like yeah, that a lot. Yeah, thanks. So... Let's move on to kind of the the new star of the show. Yeah, yeah it is absolutely the star for sure. So we tasted this yesterday. We've got some great video, um, and we're going to be putting together kind of a little sizzle reel uh, to accompany this podcast. Awesome. That's so cool, man. Thank you. Yeah, we had a great tasting yesterday at a really beautiful bar here in New Orleans, Justine. Um, so I, ha- I was able to actually taste these. Uh, and you actually launched the Claren here at Tales of the Cocktail, correct? Yeah, yeah. We we uh, we called it a sneak peek just because I literally packed two cases of Claren in my bag, and uh, so we have distribution. But the only people in America that have it were yesterday at that bar. So we called it a sneak peek, but um, we're going to throw a big launch event for the West Coast and the East Coast in the coming months, and uh, and then people can go get it. That's excellent. Yeah. So, Claren, uh, to rewind a little bit, you gave us the 35,000-foot overview yeah. saying that basically this is moonshine. It's kind of mm-hmm. what you referred to it as mm-hmm. when you were young and when you didn't have as, as much of a grasp on the, the nuances of it. Talk to me a little bit about what Claren is and, and some of the other distinctions that mm-hmm. make it really special and I guess really delicious as well. Yeah, totally. So I guess I would add that my uh, comparing it to moonshine really stemmed from, like you mentioned, being young. And then just the fact that so many Haitians uh, make it themselves, which uh, in the U.S., my only um, comparison was moonshine. You right. Know, the only only kind of thing I, people made at home in their backyards was moonshine as far as I was aware of. So, and I think that that uh, distinction about moonshine is probably not super accurate. Uh, but I do think that the point that so many folks make it themselves is is very important for the history of Claren. So some folks have counted, um, but I think an easy estimate is like probably over 500 stills um, running across Haiti. And so Claren now is really Haiti's kind of communal spirit. It's the thing that folks uh, drink when they're celebrating. It's a thing that people drink at home. Spending as much time as we have had in Haiti, one thing that's really interesting is overwhelmingly so the Claren is not bottled and sold like you and I would imagine it would be at a gas station or a corner store. Barbon Court is, and uh, Prestige, one of the probably most famous Haitian beers is. Uh, but Claren is really a communal experience for folks. And so what will happen is the distillers will distill their product and then take it to the central market in town and sell it from a large format jug. And so people will come to market with their own vessels of whatever type that they want to take the Claren home in and really buy it in bulk. Right. Um, like that, a, almost like a, um, uh, not a keg, not a carboy, like a, like a growler, a growler. Yeah, yeah exactly. Claren growler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're actually way ahead of us. If we just had called them growlers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really cool. Um, and, uh, one of the things that I like so much about, about the Claren is that, you know, it's driven by what's going on in each town and community, both in terms of the terroir. I think it's a really, uh, authentic expression of terroir and spirits, which I know we'll probably talk about a little more when we, when we pop the top on it. But, um, right. One of the other things that people do in Haiti is uh, they're called trompes, but um, they infuse them with stuff. So they infuse them with bark, with bitter orange. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's a stand that I can think of if I close my eyes in a town called St. Mark where the gentleman may or not be infusing his with cannabis. So, I mean, <laughs> there really is kind of a whatever strikes your fancy approach to enjoying Claire and, and Haiti. Yeah, it's like grandma or grandpa's special sauce. You know, it's uh, something you can pass down. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, oh, you know, my, my grandma adds orange zest to her cake and yours yep. adds, you know, a little bit of nutmeg to this or that. You know, it yeah. sounds very much like a family uh, tradition. For sure, yeah. Um, we had a, a young lady show up to the to the event yesterday, Justine, who was Haitian. Talked to her for a long time and her grandmother growing up ran a still. So we talked a whole bunch about what they did with their clearing. So wow. it was really cool. We are not infusing with anything, and she was not either, but it was just kind of cool to talk about the process and where they got their cane from. So um, a lot of folks in Haiti are farmers. I mean, um, mm -hmm. I mentioned agriculture probably being one of their best chances out of the depth of the poverty that they're in. Um, but it also, in the current state, is their source of sustenance for a lot of a lot of people. So Sure. And um, I imagine the growing season is pretty much continuous. Yeah, you can grow and harvest whenever. There are folks that probably are a bit wealthier and don't harvest in the rainy season, but um, the soil in Haiti is magnificently fertile, so yeah. the stuff that they grow is fantastic. Which is terrible for something like grapes. Sure. But great yeah. for something like sugarcane. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things that you said when we were tasting this yesterday is, and this is something that I, I don't know if many of our home listeners would would necessarily think of because I was not aware mm -hmm. per se is that there's a bunch of different types of sugar cane. Yeah, yeah, they're varietals. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, it's cool. Um, yeah, so uh, Haiti is home to, and frankly, I don't know how many, but it's a whole bunch. It's I would say it's more than 15 types of native non-hybridized uh, sugarcane varietals. So this is not, um, you know, fancy pants guy bringing sugarcane over in 2010 and saying. Here's Cab Franc. Enjoy. Right. So it, yeah, it really is what's been there for a long time. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the the distinction between the varietals is multivariable. So there's um, the yield of sugar that you get from them. So, for example, one of the varietals. Uh, so ours is a blend of four varietals. Um, one of the cane types that's in our blend is uh, crystalline. It's a really thin stalk or thin reed of sugar cane. And so the yield is pretty low. Um, it's super delicious. Um but you just you don't get a ton of sugar juice out of it, right? Um, so they vary both in terms of color, flavor profile, uh, and then of course yield. Um, some of them grow faster, some of them grow a little thicker, and so um, depending on your plant, your your field, you may have all, you may have some. Uh, most of the the farms that I've come across have got probably a blend of the varietals. You'd have to be really intentional to sort out the cane varietals, but you can do it at harvest if that's something that you. We're really excited about. Um, we actually didn't want to do that because um, we were harvesting the cane and we wanted to be thoughtful about the folks both growing it and working it and sorting through, you know, one out of every five varietal to not use it in our product didn't seem like what we wanted to do. So, right. It seems expensive and labor intensive. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I just wanted to, to mention, and, and this is something that I've been thinking about more and more is that I, I do think, I think where, where Claren really falls into the category of moonshine to me mm -hmm. is a history of oppression. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing. That's one through line that I always draw when it comes to moonshine. Uh, and obviously we come to the word moonshine, maybe not obviously, but we come to the word moonshine from Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, the Irish people were oppressed by the, the British, or I should say that the Celts, the, mm -hmm. the native Irish were oppressed by the British starting 
in the you know early teen centuries mm -hmm. and this distilling technology that came over around then and became popular around then was something they had to do at night by the light of the moon so that they would not get caught by their oppressors and that tradition has translated down through pretty much the entire Western Hemisphere because yeah. European powers have oppressed the native mm -hmm. peoples of pretty much the entire Western Hemisphere mm -hmm. in one way or another. So to me, that's really where the moonshine comes in. And thinking about it as like those different cane varietals is another one of those comparisons that I make with mezcal right. and different right. agave varieties. Um, now, obviously... Sugarcane has a, a bit of an advantage over mezcal in mm -hmm. terms of sustainability because yeah. you can grow sugarcane in what, about a year? Yeah, well, you can grow definitely in a year planting cycle, maybe even a little less in Haiti. Yeah, yeah. so it does have an advantage in that uh, agaves tend to take 8 to 20 years to mm -hmm. mature. And mm -hmm. so from a sustainability standpoint, I sure. really love Claren. Yeah, uh, That's yeah. one of the things that got me really excited. We had an episode a while back where we had a user-submitted question of like, what is Claren? Yeah, yeah, and, I remember that one. And I was like, yo, this is really exciting to me because it seems to have a lot of the advantages of mezcal in mm -hmm. terms of flavor – but then like way more sustainability. So why don't we pour this? And then uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the other really big connection between the mezcal tradition and the clarin being open fermentation? Yeah, totally. Sure. Cool. So while you're pouring that too, I would just add, um, you know, I, I think your, your point about moonshine and the mm -hmm. history of oppression is really important. We are hyper aware that uh, my dad and I are two white guys doing work in Haiti and uh, the sugarcane varietals that I mentioned earlier are there because uh, Haiti has got a history of slavery. Uh, they were actually the only successful slave overthrow of a government in 1804. Uh, they kicked Napoleon Bonaparte's butt and uh, probably an, a wonderful thing for Haiti, but also brought them some challenges as well. Right. Uh, left them. They had essentially just hosted their own war and were left with the land that they fought it on. And, you know, there were some opportunistic folks outside of their borders that swooped in and offered them deals that maybe were not as sweet as they looked. So, you know, Haiti has been taken advantage of for a long time. So uh, one of the things that we always come back to is to, with the charity aspect is, you know, I still have a day job. Dad and I don't pay ourselves a dollar from St. Benevolence. Uh, the charities that we work with are, uh, have little to no administrative overhead. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not interested in sending money to a charity where the founder of the charity makes 400 grand. Um, so we're really intentional that uh, the people that get the money from the sales of this product and from the work that the charity is doing are Haitians. Um, so, you know, the other thing that we're really intentional to do, and we can talk about this as we sip it, is uh, we're not here to tell people what Claren is or isn't. Right. It's not my ancestral product. It's a product that I experienced in a lifetime commitment to charity work in a country that needs a bunch of help. And um, I really just want to share it with people who are excited about spirits. I think it's a really rad category. And yesterday, uh, the young lady, Stephanie, came up to us at the event, said that her grandmother ran a still. And we started talking about how she can get that still back up and running. And I mean, I want her to start a Claren label. Let's import that stuff. Let's yeah. get it. So. Rising tides lift all boats, but the Claren, the Claren boats need to be lifted. Um, and so I'm, we're really just trying to bring an awesome product to the States. Um, right. So, and this is a much longer discussion. Uh, I don't think it's possible for us to get into all the nuances here. Sure. It's, there's a lot of contention with it. Uh, and there's a lot of, I, I'll just put it out there right now. There's a lot of potential for this to be mishandled by people who see Claren as a category that 
has a lot of dollar signs behind it sure because yeah. it looks and acts so much like the things that people love about mezcal mm-hmm. i th- again there's no possible way for us to get into those nuances but um I think one of the things we should talk about is the fact that you've made a very intentional choice with this mm-hmm. to open ferment it. So yeah. can you tell us as we as we smell, maybe tell us about that and then we can talk about the flavor notes that maybe we're perceiving. Yeah, totally. So like I mentioned earlier, everything agriculturally in Haiti is grown organically. Um, that's not necessarily done by choice, but um, they've benefited greatly from uh, how delicious their agricultural products are. Sure. Uh, and so because of that, the fresh crushed juice of sugarcane will ferment naturally uh, from native yeast, both on the stalks and in the air, if you let it sit out in the open. Yeah. Before we go too nerdy on that, I would call out that the town that we have been doing all the charity work in, the town that was the inspiration for this, is uh, San Michel de Atalay. And San Michel is really considered the grand crew of Claren in Haiti. And, and they're known for making it in a, um, an approach called Method San Michel. Uh, and Method San Michel is actually a syrup-based clarin. So they will apply low heat from the crushed dry bagasse, the sugar cane that's been crushed, mm-hmm. in the field and slow boil the sugar cane juice to turn it into a syrup. And the farmers and the folks running uh, the process will know when the syrup is ready um, essentially by, by eye. And then the syrup is then used to make the Claren product. And of course, syrup is not going to naturally ferment because we've applied heat to it. So right. what we've done with our product is we've done two things. Um, we've taken the syrup-based product uh, and used selected yeast to ferment and then distill. Uh, we wanted to tip our cap to the method San Michel, what has put San Michel on the map in Haiti for Claren production. But then we also are taking uh, the fresh crushed sugarcane juice, which sits open vat, spontaneous fermentation, from native yeast. Uh, it takes about five to seven days. Uh, and again, our distiller keeps an eye on the vat and it's really their call as to when the fermentation process is done. Right. Um, this is the element of Claren that makes it so interesting. You know, we started importing the product and we were really intentional not to attempt to apply a bunch of Western technology to their still. Um, it would be easy for us to go in and be like, okay, get rid of that thing. We're gonna, we're gonna build yeah. you a new still. Here you go. It's attached to a computer. This is a steam jacket. Yeah. So um, that kind of artisanal aspect of it makes it so unique. So that being said, the syrup or the juice is still fermenting open vat. And the time frame is actually all that, not all that much different. Um, so that is what you're going to get some of your wild aroma from the product. So. And you're totally, even though you're, you're, you're selecting a yeast for some of it, mm-hmm. the, the, the syrup aspect of it, if it's open vat, there's other stuff getting in there. Yeah. And the cool thing, so I, I was in my mezcal seminar and, you know, one of the things that they mentioned, like the last little flight we did was, was literally the same bottle, the same label, same agave variety, same distiller, different batches different at different times of years. And mm-hmm. that was possibly the most extreme flavor difference that was that occurred during that entire tasting and it was the least different from the outside point of view it was like same bottle same label just different batches yeah and no difference in the method and that really opened my eyes to what a difference it can make to introduce outside spontaneous fermentation to a distilled product and so what really appeals to me about the process that you just described is Mm -hmm. that you have you have something that is somewhat of a K, somewhat of a constant mm-hmm. in that you've got the 
method Saint-Michel. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a little bit of consistency there. Sure. And I, to, to me, like when you were talking about the French imported stills, mm-hmm. it's like that, to me, that's that's a little French to mm-hmm. me. It, it, it mm-hmm. rings a little bit of the French distilling tradition. Sure. And uh, like almost not dosage per se, but mm-hmm. almost like a dosage from the front end, if mm-hmm. that makes sense of yeah. like, we're going to use a syrup from the front end. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, a, add a little bit of a consistency, mm-hmm. smoothness, mm-hmm. kind of um, body to that, that mm-hmm. end product. And then we're also going to spontaneously ferment and just have this total X factor come in and just add this beautiful spontaneity yeah. to the end product. Yeah. I, lo- I just love that you're combining those two aspects. Cool. Thank and you, I, I think that really comes out. So I could give my impressions, but but I think for the listeners at home, it might might help to have you walk us through what we're tasting and smelling here. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've not experienced this, uh, a product like this, I mean, it really is uh, on the nose, like probably nothing you've ever you've ever taken in. Yeah, it gives me it literally gives me goosebumps. Yeah. So I I, uh, I could describe a whole a whole host of things that you're going to get on the nose. So I think uh, to me, I'm getting and typically we'll get from our product based on where we're producing the sugar cane, a ton of green banana on the nose. Yeah. Um, I think there's also some wasabi coming through, maybe some fresh wasabi. It has a little bit of, um, that kind of pungency to it, but mm-hmm. not in a, not in a funky way mm-hmm. in a, in like a, yeah, like a prickly way almost. Yeah. I think you're going to get some green grass and maybe a little green olive, but I don't think the olive is going to come through as strong as you might get on some Martinique agricoles. Totally. And I do get the olive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll spoil this because we're going to be talking <laughs> about something else by the time it comes to talk, to, to mention this. Mm-hmm. But I was speaking to one of my friends yesterday as we were tasting these things. And sometimes you hear spirits nerds talk about oh, the 30 second finish, the minute finish, the mm-hmm. two minute finish. Yeah. This has like a five minute finish. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it hangs out. Like, yeah. Yeah. So tell, uh, so we got the nose. I'm going to, let's take a taste here yeah. and then you can tell us what we're getting. And what is the proof on this? It's a hundred proof. So yeah, that is, so if you were to just take a swallow and breathe in, you'd get that heat like the, <gasps> yeah. um, but if, if you just chew on it a little bit, yep. it doesn't, it does not taste like a hundred proof. It's not that hot to me anyway. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. So, and I love that you said chew on it cause I think it's got some viscosity to it. I mean, it's <sighs> lovely body. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's got this really nice kind of like wet gravel. Um, aspect to it. You may, you may also notice I um, come from a stronger wine background with my tasting notes than I do the spirit world. So I think of things and how I was taught to taste through wines. Um, sure. So wet gravel and I think um, some salinity too, almost like a almost like a briny briny salinity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get those um, those mineral notes. Yep. A lot on the finish. Mm-hmm. Like that's what to me at the five at the five minute finish I get the the brine and the mm-hmm. minerality. Or what linger mm-hmm. um, for me, and you get that the, the body. I, I really attribute that, whether correctly or not, to to the the method Saint Michel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just that lovely, lovely, rich body. I, I think it's got a different body than the five year, right? Oh, because sure. it, it wasn't barrel aged, so sure. that that body is not coming from a tannin structure. It's a completely different architecture between sure. your two products. Yeah, and I think tasting them side by side is a really cool demonstration of, of what rum is and what what it can oh, do. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I'm a I'm a uh, avid listener of uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, as maybe you and some of your listeners might be. Sure, he always talks about um, 
how you know Mike Tyson and an Olympic uh, female gymnastic don't look like they're even the same species. Uh, and I, th- I mean, these are really the same thing. Like, right. if you poured those for two people, and I mean, rum is basically just three letters we decided to put in a certain order to call these two things because they are very, very different. Exactly. Uh, they both come from sugarcane. That's about all they have in common. So, aside from sipping this neat, which I mean, I could do all day. Yeah. What kind of cocktails might one mix with this? And and do does anybody give you like a little eyebrow raise? So I know that. Uh, in the miscal tradition, mm-hmm. when brand reps from the U.S. or importers mm-hmm. uh, talk to them about cocktails, they kind of go white in the face a little bit, and they're like, "You're what? You're, You're doing do what with it? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> what kind of cocktails do you do? And, and do you ever get those kind of reactions from the folks who make this or consume it natively? So most of the folks in in Haiti that we spend time with are drinking it straight. Um, but the tea punch is a really popular way to drink it in Haiti. Um, that's probably the most popular way to drink it if you're not just going to sip it neat. Okay. And what is the tea punch? Yeah. So the tea punch is a, a, a cocktail that, um, I'll probably butcher the history of it, but it comes from, you know, the French Caribbean islands and the way that they drink rum. Uh, the agricoles are probably the most known ingredient as the base spirit for a tea punch, but it's essentially, uh, the white unaged agricole or clarin rum. Uh, a wedge of lime, and then uh, syrup of some sort. Um, if you're in a country like Haiti or Martinique, you can actually use uh, a cane syrup. Um, if you're in the States, maybe you choose to use a simple syrup. Um, and the cool thing about the tea punch is um, you prepare it in the manner that you like it. And so right. some people kind of swizzle the syrup and add a little bit more lime or a little less lime. Some people like to throw in a couple ice cubes after they've built the drink. Um, mm-hmm. But it really is just your classic spirit sweet acid. And is it T-E-A or T-I? It's T-I. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. like, when you think of like a tea punch, like tea, T-E-A, is a common ingredient punch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's different than that for sure. And so essentially what we're talking here is a proto-daiquiri. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, you know, it's just the distillate and then other stuff that's lying around that, yeah, that, sure. that, that's kind of conducive to those warm weather climates. Yeah, So so back to your cocktail question. It's a great question because, again... We've done a, a lot of things really intentionally to make this product something that uh, can afford, the bars can afford to put it on their cocktail menu. It was yeah. really important to us. But in doing that, you also have to give them a sense of what they can do it do with it. So I will say, you know, the accounts and the people that we've met this week have been super excited to play with it themselves and figure out like, oh man, how do we get this to work in a cocktail? I can't, I can't imagine how yeah. excited they are. But it's been really fun to play with it ourselves too and hopefully give them some suggestions so that when they do receive the product, they've got maybe something to work off of. So, and you know, uh, one of the things we're, we're working on is, uh, you know, Claren doesn't have its cocktail, you know, whiskey has an old fashioned rum has a daiquiri. And so those are kind of the things we're thinking through is like, how can we lob a softball to the bar so that they can make something with it? Well, um, and I think the problem is that the tea punch is so similar to a daiquiri. Sure. And like, like when you were describing it, like, and, and maybe they add some ice, well, mm-hmm. ice is, Ice requires infrastructure. Yeah. And the tea punch is really tip of the spear. I mean, like it's the it's the rum nerds that are making the tea punches at home. So so yesterday at Justine, we threw a, an awesome uh, event and uh, we're lucky enough to have one of our very good friends, uh, Susan Eggett out of Last Rites in San Francisco, design a cocktail menu for us featuring the Claren and a couple cocktails blending both rums together. And so she's a, she's a mastermind of, of cocktail and even 
more beautiful human being. And so she she designed a whole bunch of cocktails for us. And so we featured a couple yesterday, uh, one of them uh, called the Bar Resto, which uh, most notably featured green chartreuse and some celery juice. That was my that was the highball. Yeah, that was that was absolutely my favorite. Awesome. Yeah. So a pinch of sea salt, uh, pineapple, lime, celery juice. Uh, and the green chartreuse. So the, the celery and the green chartreuse are really bringing out the herbaceous notes of the clarin that I think work really well. We did a drink called a T.P. Joan, which uh, was our take on a Paloma. Paloma mm-hmm. means dove. T.P. Joan means little pigeon. It's close. There's yeah. no word for dove in, in Haitian Creole. So we kind of did a play on a, on a Paloma. So some of the flavors you would want out of a mezcal-based Paloma, but with uh, clarin. Right. Was that the um, coupe glass? Uh, no, that was, that was the, the, the rocks glass. The rocks glass, slice of grapefruit, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then uh, the last one was that French 75 take in the coupe glass that you mentioned, which we called a Toussaint 91 as a homage to Toussaint Louverture, gentleman who started the Haitian Revolution in 1791. Right. Uh, so that was very literally a, a French 75, uh, but with Claren instead of gin or whatever you like to make. Some beautiful with. irony in that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we also did it at a French bistro, which... They yeah. were cool with it. Yeah, they had that beautiful mirror with all the French phrases on it. Yeah. Beautiful bar. If anyone's in New Orleans, that just a beautiful, yeah. beautiful drinking experience. Sometimes you get in New Orleans, you kind of, you you can embrace the, not the dinginess, but the the, the darker kind of. The divey spots. The divier spots. Yeah. But this place is just open, bright, well-lit, mm-hmm. marble bar, just just really, really beautiful. That yeah. that's going to be featured in our sizzle roll. So if you want to cool. check out some of that, what that bar looks like, um, you can head over to our YouTube channel or the show notes page for this podcast over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Um, but I think right now um, I'll I'll ask you: Is there anything else, Chase, that you want to? Uh, communicate to our listeners about either of your products or the charity before we jump into lightning round? I mean, I, I think we covered it really well. I'll say that, you know, the the bottling of the Clarin has been um, a ton of hard work and something that we're immensely proud of. One of the things that we didn't touch on that I think is really important to, to mention is that uh, through St. Benevolence, what we've been able to do is we've been able to provide potential opportunities that the charity has not. And so one of those is jobs, which I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Right. So we're really pumped about um, the impact of jobs in Haiti with the creation of a company that's going to continue to bring the rum in. The other thing that is, uh, I think is important to note is that it also creates a new cohort of folks that can benefit from our charity work. So all of our workers that are working in the fields, harvesting the cane, that are processing it, and then running the still uh, all have access to our healthcare uh, system. Um, a couple of them have have uh, had some surgery. Gives it kind of a new meaning to the the term in network, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. It does. Yeah. Right? So last time we were down there, um, one of the guys working the I re- finally recognized uh, one of the guys working in the field. Uh, we had done his uh, inguinal hernia repair, and I didn't didn't recognize him because in the OR you're not really looking at his face when you're repairing a hernia. So. So when we realized who he was, like, oh, show me the show me the scar. Let's see how I closed up. And so he was, you know, he was stoked. Um, so so they have access to the surgical care and the health uh, programs that we're offering in San Michel. And then their kids all have access to our school system. So so cool. Um, yeah, it really is taking. You know, there have been, of course, some contentious moments in rum, even in the modern era, with field workers not being cared for. And so um, there are so many uh, hot topic questions that come up with white guys making or bringing rum from a place like Haiti. So uh, we are as transparent as we can be about it, but there are some stuff, there's some stuff like that that we are proud to share because uh, we've worked really hard to be able to give 
those um, benefits to the people that we're working with. We post our tax returns on our website too. So if you're curious if uh, dad and I are saving up to buy a, a yacht or something, uh, we're not. And you can tell it by <laughs> looking at our St. Benevolence tax returns on our website. It's so, fantastic. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the last little note on the Claren. I think it's nice uh, to see that you're leading by example. I think. Cool. Thank you, man. You know, like just describing you know, the the charity work that got you there in the first mm -hmm. place and got you into contact with this juice in the first place, you know, obviously coming from a good place and from an actual connection with the reverend who was there. Yeah. You know, it's good to have those organic roots, both with the, the spirits and, and with the, the social aspect. But I think leading by example is really tough to do in the spirits world where acquisition and uh, I guess... Monopoly, monopolistic practices are, mm -hmm. are pretty commonplace. And so mm -hmm. when big brands come into the picture, sometimes, uh, actually, you know, I think the word sometimes is even generous. Uh, yeah, transparency sure. kind of sure. goes, goes away. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, like one of my big takeaways besides the amazing flavors that we just experienced, uh, with the rums, one of my big takeaways is just, uh, an excitement over transparency and yeah. excitement over leading by example. So, um, congrats on that. And thank you, man. On that note, do you want to hit a couple lightning rounds? Let's do it. Favorite cocktail. Favorite cocktail all times, probably a Negroni. Um, but I will say that that TP John we've been making the take on a Paloma with the Claren base is like slowly sneaking up on it. It's uh, good. Especially in the summer. Like it's really good. Warm, bitter flavors, Claren. It's yeah, that's probably my nice. And the Paloma is a fan. I mean, it's like, it's a great format. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great format. Oh, my wife and I have been crushing Claire and Palomas at the house. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's been, they're delicious. Beautiful. Yeah. If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be? Why? So I was born and raised in Miami, uh, which is an interesting place to grow up. Uh, actually, third, okay. gen third generation Miami, which is also very rare. Interesting. Uh, not a lot of folks from Miami. Yeah. Uh, so because of that, I probably would say lime juice um, would be <sighs> if I were a cocktail ingredient. <laughs> You know, growing up in Miami, lime finds its way into like everything. My family traditionally is a kind of maybe more Southern roots. Uh, grandmother comes from Atlanta. My mom's side comes from West Virginia. So okay. not quite Southern, but essentially Southern. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a couple of barbecue places in, in, uh, in Miami that are still kind of doing the Southern barbecue thing. But like you'd order sweet tea and they'd all throw a slice of lime in the sweet tea. Oh, that's awesome. And like, I just thought that was normal until I moved away to college and South, to South Carolina and realized like sweet tea comes with lemon, not lime. Yeah. So I would say lime just because in Miami, lime ends up on, on and in everything. So random association, Miami, lime, Sam Axe, USA, original series, burn notice. How do you, how do you feel about burn notice? You lost me at burn notice. You never, you've never seen burn notice. <laughs> no. All right. If you want to watch the worst, like, <laughs> It's completely bingeable, okay. but it's about a burned spy who who lives in Miami. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with the with the premise. I just never. Oh, it's 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 really it's really bad TV, but it's incredibly bingeable. And they show they they show these beautiful like all of their transition shots are just um, like uh, like Caribbean or salsa music mm -hmm. with like montages of Miami. And it's like it's like man, I just it just makes you want to go there. That's awesome. Well, um, it's like the first few seasons of Dexter too. Yeah. Also set in Miami. Right, right. Makes you want to go to Miami and not get murdered by a serial Ooh, sure. Well, there's that. Uh, so, Widowmaker question: Cocktail with anybody, past or present? Who would it be? Where would you go? What yeah. do you drink? Wow. Uh, so I'm gonna say uh, the who is Ernest Hemingway, one of my favorite authors. 
Uh, he is also responsible for writing what is probably my favorite book, uh, A Movable Feast. Mm. And Movable Feast is uh, essentially a memoir of his from when he was young and traveling uh, through France as a young writer before he had written Farewell to Arms or anything that anyone cared about, frankly. Is that pre-war? Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's traveling through Paris, and uh, there's the opening chapter of, uh, of Movable Feast is he, he walks down Place Saint-Michel, which has, of course, a now that I'm thinking about it, has a really cool connection to Saint-Michel and Haiti. Uh, so he goes to a cafe and he orders a rum uh, St. James, which is a Martinique agricole. Mm. So in my version of the story, he's ordering a St. Benevolent's Claren because uh-huh. it's going to drink pretty closely to that St. James. So cool. And then uh, and then he, he has a wonderful quote where he uh, orders oysters and a glass of white wine, dry white wine, which I'll just assume is a Sancerre. And sure. so the oysters and the white wine, Ernest Hemingway, glass of Claren, that's the... Yo, that sounds so good. Yeah. Also, there's good. They're they're not the same types of oysters, but there's also pretty good oysters here in New Orleans. I've they I've are had they're quite they're, a few. They're big. They're big. You, you got to chew on them for a little bit. You do. So, in living, I live in Northern California now. I'm a little spoiled. Our oysters are year round, uh, and they're fairly small, so they're a little more crushable than when they're the size of your fist. And you yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these have like some serious texture. Like you're like, did I just get a bone in there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So, getting into more of the advicey side of things uh are there any books about rum about haiti about the history of the caribbean anything that we've yeah. been talking about is there any resources in the written format that you can mm-hmm. point people to if they've kind of gotten the itch from listening to this absolutely yeah so if you're interested in haiti at all uh if you're interested in doing nonprofit work in haiti if you've done if you've donated to something in haiti i think the the required reading is a book called uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains. Uh, And it's a book written by a lady who I think's name is Tracy Kidder, but she's writing it about Dr. Paul Farmer, who is an infectious disease physician from Harvard Medical School, started Partners in Health, which now runs free hospitals across the world and has done unbelievable things to fight multi-drug resistant tuberculosis in Haiti. So um, Mountains Beyond Mountains, I think is, in my mind, the book that you must read if you have any interest in charity care or even healthcare delivery in poor countries. You don't have to be a healthcare professional to like it. You don't have to be a nonprofit guy or gal to like it. Um, if you have any interest in Haiti and what's going on there, Paul Farmer, uh, I think, illustrates a beautiful model of what it looks like to care for people in a, in a really poor place. Yeah. And I think sets some really nice rules about questions that we might have as fortunate white Americans who have interest in helping folks. Uh, he addresses a lot of the awkward and uncomfortable topics about what do poor people think about when you show up in a suit and you're so I mean, he talks a lot a bit about the cultural uh, back and forth between a physician traveling from Harvard to the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. So a fantastic book uh, on the spirit side. I think I would probably say um, there's a book called, and I may butcher the title, but it's called by the smoke and the smell. And it's by Thad Vogel, a gentleman who owns yeah. and operates uh, probably most notably bar agricole, in uh in san francisco yeah true normand yep. and uh obispo yep yeah so all fantastic bars focused on different spirit spirits and different types of spirits but uh there's something about the way that that book is written too i think that really speaks to some of the things that we've talked about with the clarin pretty vulnerable i think it really does a good job talking about from the the bar sourcing you're 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 sourcing 
from like an importers and from a philanthropic standpoint, yeah. Thad is sourcing from a, a bar and cocktail program standpoint. And, and I think a lot of the concerns in that book really come from a place of how do I do right by my customers almost in a way that gets them so excited that they go and do what I just did mm -hmm. and go to the places and yeah. experience the stuff. Yeah. So it's a different type of bridge building. It's a very sensory book. It's a very um, well-written travelogue. I'd call it like a travelogue. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we, we do have, for folks listening, uh, we do have a book review of By the Smoke and the Smell um, back, you know, a few dozen episodes here. So uh, search for that over at modernbarcart.com. You'll pull it right up. You can listen to uh, some more in-depth thoughts, but I do highly recommend that book cool. as well. Any advice for somebody who may be new to the rum category or new to Claren, perhaps, um, in terms of incorporating these products into their lives as an enthusiast? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, if you're learning, I've always felt that, you know, asking, asking dumb questions is, is one of the easiest way to learn as much as you can. You know, I, I don't do rum as a day job yet. Um, and so getting into the industry or any industry is just asking really good questions, uh, taking good notes and then building meaningful relationships with people. I think any industry is ripe for people who are into it for honest reasons. Uh, and so if you're an enthusiast and you're curious about products that may seem nerdier or there might be some cultural gatekeepers that, you know, kind of keep the information from you, it's just to build relationships with your local bartender, ask good questions, ask about products you've heard about online, yeah. um, about whether they can get them for you or whether that they'd be willing to throw it on their bar and, and play with it. Even yeah. if they have to do like a one-off event, even if it's just like, listen, can, you know, this, this rum does great things. I know getting a case is a bit of a risk, but mm -hmm. what if, what if we throw a party and go through that case almost guaranteed? Sure. And then you see how you like it. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, um, it's not really a hard sell, especially during the summer when people want rum cocktails yeah, and, sure, and that sure. sort of, so yeah, there's, there's so many things that you can be doing as a home consumer. Mm -hmm. And this is something I've been trying to hammer across lately, uh, is, is how much say you actually do have in the process and that, that say take takes place in, in three primary places. It takes place at the bar when you're ordering mm -hmm. a cocktail and what you choose to include in it. It takes place at the liquor store with what you choose to t take off the shelf mm -hmm. or request that they actually put on their shelves. And yeah. it takes place in the home when you're serving cocktails and drinks to your friends and how you choose to educate them about what tastes good to you and why. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really want people listening to, you know, take that cue to, you know, if this is exciting to you, do something about it. Yeah. Right. We have somebody right here with us who's been doing not just something about it. He's been doing an amazing thing to solve a lot of big problems with these two bottles. So um, I guess the last thing I'll ask, Chase, is for you to uh, let folks know how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the website is sampenevolence.com. Tax returns and all. Yeah, tax returns and all. Uh, <laughs> The Instagram social media account is at St. Benevolence. You can find me on Instagram if you want at LOL with Chase. <laughs> um, uh, and I think that covers the St. Benevolence stuff. You know, there's one thing I want to add, if that's okay. Yeah, uh, please. We, you, talk, you asked me a little bit about what would I tell people who are uh, interested in getting to know more about rum. Yeah. Um, my father and I, Calvin, gave a seminar yesterday at Tales of the Cocktail on the business of charity. And uh, he left the group with a couple parting words. And I think because we're a charitable brand, probably, I think... Uh, important that I share them as well, which is if we've talked a little bit about what to do if you're passionate about rum or clarin or 
any other product that may be hard to find in your market. But if you're in the industry or in any industry and you have a passion about taking on an initiative in the industry or in another industry that helps folks, you know, Martin Luther King said that anybody can be great because everybody can serve. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to understand the theory of relativity. All you have to do is serve. Uh, you have to have a heart full of grace and love and be willing to help people. And I think the thing that's really important to note is uh, the purity of your purpose is what gives you power. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't, I didn't come up with that. Uh, it's something my father shared yesterday and obviously took his inspiration from, from Martin Luther King. But it's daunting to start a rum company in an industry full of people with much deeper pockets and much more influence. Uh, but when we approach people and we sit down for conversations and we are open and transparent about where the products come from, what we're doing with the money and what our vision is, uh, that's really, I think, where our power comes from. So uh, you listening may not want to start a rum company, but there may be some aspect of your job or your day-to-day -day life that you think you can be making a change or improving uh, lives for folks that aren't as fortunate as you. I think hopefully that provides a little bit of inspiration. Absolutely. And if, and if that doesn't, the rum certainly will. Yeah. Uh, so Chase, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, delicious rum and inspiring philanthropic work by Chase and Calvin Babcock and St. Benevolence Rum, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.